0: you're listening to an ODI
1: live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Morning. Morning. I am Sara Pantulian. I'm the Chief Executive here at ODI. I'm really delighted to welcome you all to the PFI Conference 2020. Um, this is great to have so many fantastic people in the room and it's it's actually the first big conference of 2020 which marks the 60th anniversary of ODI getting old still going. Um, And and if you think about it, you know, the work that we do on public financial management, the work that we do with finance ministries around the world has been very much at the heart of the history of ODI ever since we were created. Um, We have had partnership, you know, very deep partnerships with finance ministries, with ministries of education and health all around the world through the ODI fellowship scheme ever since ODI was created. And so it's, particularly uh, nice, you know, this year to welcome so many representatives of our country government partners um, here to the I. I believe that we've got more than 20 um, different countries represented, and we could have had more had it not been for UK immigration rules. Um, but anyway, welcome. It's great to have you here. But this year also marks the 20th anniversary of CAPE. I'm sure a lot of you remember CAPE, you know, the Center for Aid and Public Expenditure. Um, now, CAPE was created 20 years ago with the idea to really focus on how, you know, we could make PRSPs, remember those? You know, the, public reduction, the, the Poverty Reduction Strategies Papers, how they could really help countries that were, you know, receiving debt relief manage um, that better how they could respond better you know to that um, debt relief the idea was to combine an aid narrative with a public spending narrative and to you know really um, help change the aid narrative you know really look at how we could you know support governments to spend that money better um, and really move away from a donor led you know aid narrative to more of a, a country government-led aid narrative with a grounding at the country level, and actually, as I look around the room, I see a lot of former Cape colleagues, and it's particularly, you know, great to welcome you back to the room because so many of you continue to care deeply about these issues and work um, on these very um, matters, you know, today. But the world has changed a lot, um, you know, since uh, Cape was created. Um, Thankfully, many countries are less reliant on aid than were, you know, when CAPE was established. And that's, you know, both because of economic growth, social um, economic development, but because we actually also have many more providers of external <coughs> finance that go beyond, you know, traditional development partners. Um, and there is also recognition that money is not the only thing that matters. Um, money is not enough. We actually need to focus a lot more on the institutions and understanding how we can, you know, strengthen the institutions so that just focus on the provision of money if you really want to help you know spend this money to deliver better services and there is a growing interest in the links between pfm of service delivery which is why we're convening this conversation today and why we don't have just the usual crowd of you know fiscal economists and accountants in the room but also health and education experts because you know we need to make sure that we have a, conver- a conversation that involves um, all of them now you know, our work in these areas has always attempted to you know inform donor policy inform policy dialogue at the global level but also bridge the narratives in you know that take place in donor capitals with the realities of what happens on the ground. And that's very much the spirit of the conversation that we want to have today and tomorrow, you know, where we really can bring together these more kind of global, top level ideas with what is the reality at country level. So I'm really delighted to welcome you all to ODI. I hope that you know the conference can you know help in sort of building this understanding of you know the confluence between international interest in public financial management and service delivery and ultimately really be useful to the governments we have in the room and beyond and to the citizens uh, are really the ones who continue to lack like access to good public services in so many different places. Um, before I hand over to Mark, I want to thank and acknowledge the support of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation that has provided financial support not just for the conference but for a lot of the work, the grounds. Um, you know the the. the the format, the focus of, of the conference, but also to Mark and his team, and to many colleagues all across ODI, they've worked really tirelessly over the past few months to make sure that we could be here today to have this conversation. Um, and with that, I welcome to you all and uh, wish you two very productive and fruitful days.
2: Great, thank you. Um, I mean, first of all, a big thanks. It's fantastic to see so many old friends in the room and also lots of new faces in the room. We're delighted to have you here, uh, here in London for this event. Regular attendees to this conference will know that normally uh, this happens in November and I've, I've never quite figured out why we invite everyone to London in November It's cold, dark, short days. Uh, This year, because of Brexit, we actually change when it happens. But I haven't quite figured out why we changed it to February. (laughs) Uh, But I hope, you know, you all manage to keep warm uh, and enjoy the days ahead. And next year, or the next conference, I promise it will be in May, in the summer. So that's a, a, a commitment from me from now. So I wanted to say a few words to help um, guide the two, two days ahead of us. I'm going to say a few things about how we see this international agenda that's emerging on PFM and service delivery. And then afterwards, Ratin is going to speak about how he sees some of these issues playing out in countries, at the country level. So in the past four to five years, there's clearly been a shift in the language that's used when people talk about PFM. I think two decades ago when people were talking about public financial management reforms, there was much more emphasis on issues around fiduciary accountability, um, ensuring that government budgets were being used in line with poverty reduction strategy papers. Today, when people talk about PFM, I think it's very rare that you don't hear the words service delivery come in almost straight afterwards. And I think not only are we hearing a change in language, we're also seeing that there's a much wider interest in this topic. So Sarah mentioned that you know, five, ten years ago when we'd hold a conference like this, there would be a certain group of people focused on public financial management, typically more from a a finance ministry background or an audit office. Increasingly, uh, there's much more interest in sectors, in the health sector, in the education sector, where people are realising that to get the most out of public funds, problems can't be solved simply in a a health ministry or education ministry alone. Many challenges to to, to delivering services stem from issues that happen in the centre of government, whether that's in a finance ministry, a procurement office. And so we're seeing this um, proliferation of of interest, most notably in the health sector, where there's a huge amount of effort and work going into understanding how PFM can support universal health coverage. We've uh, just written a paper that's taken stock of all the different diagnostic instruments that have been done in this area. There's already eight and counting different diagnostics, understanding the links between PFM and health. The education sector is also following close behind. There's now a a toolkit being developed to understand PFM bottlenecks for education delivery. And so clearly there's a, a, a laudable and important motivation to see public money used to deliver better public services. But I think international development is littered with examples of where good intentions on their own are not necessarily enough. And what we're really needing to think about critically is how this international focus on PFM and service delivery can be made most useful for governments and citizens that... That benefit from services. And that's really what we're, we're thinking about and grappling with the, over the next two days. Now, it's not as if uh, sort of PFM has suddenly been discovered. There's been a lot of attention and time and money has been spent in the past two decades in strengthening PFM. But where we see the world now, if I was to kind of talk about where we see a future agenda for PFM and service delivery, we, we're thinking about this almost like a fork in the road. If, if I had a slide, I'd probably show you a, a fork, but I, you know, I'll do it with my, with my arms. Here's a fork. And I think there's, there's two alternative paths we see that this agenda could follow. I think one path is what we'd describe almost as a, a rhetorical agenda, where... There's a change in language, a change in rhetoric, um, but actually the substance of PFM reform remains largely the same. Maybe a wider interest base, maybe more zeal, but essentially the same reforms, more money, but the same reforms done over and over again. And I think this shouldn't be totally dismissed out of hand, this rhetorical path. There are lots of core administrative capabilities of government that still really matter. The the ability of a finance ministry to perform its core tasks, to get money where it needs to get to, when it needs to get there, is as important for service delivery as it is for keeping the photocopiers on in a finance ministry or providing access to justice or so on and so forth. But I think if this was only a rhetorical agenda, then it would be a a missed opportunity. We think this PFM and service delivery agenda, a more promising path on this side, my other fork, my my other path, offers a real opportunity for a much deeper critical reflection on what the role of PFM is and how it can support service delivery. And I think There's three areas where we think this critical reflection is most needed. I think the first area is really asking, what should be the role of PFM? I think over the years, analytical frameworks have developed, technical tools. PFM, in some sense, has become a bit anodyne, a bit technocratic. And there is an important question for governments to be asking What's the budget for? Why do we manage these processes? What do we want to get out of our expenditure management processes? And when thinking about that, it poses some real difficult questions. Because actually, expenditure management processes have to serve multiple purposes. They have to... Government Finance ministries need to keep a lid on total spending. They need to make sure rules are being followed. But they also... It's important that public spending is being used to deliver the kinds of services that are needed and citizens care about. I think a second opportunity is to think more seriously about how expenditure and management arrangements can be adapted to the specific needs of different services. So, four years ago we had a conference here on infrastructure. And there, there's a lot of focus on the importance of getting appraisal processes right to make efficient investments. But what about health and education, these services that we're going to be talking about over the next couple of days? What are the specific management arrangements that are required to get these things working well? Actually, to deliver these kinds of services, what you're really thinking about is having to Change behaviors of thousands of service providers all across the country. And that raises some very specific and difficult questions about public financial management. How do we delegate responsibility? How much flexibility should providers be given? How do we get money to the front line? So I think. Thinking very carefully about how management arrangements can meet specific service needs is a second critical opportunity. I think a third critical opportunity is about thinking differently about PFM, not just as a something that sits on its own, as a budget cycle that sits on its own, separate from the rest of government. Actually... Many of the most critical service delivery questions are about how different processes link together. So you can have world-class policy analysis done in the health sector, but if it's not linked to a process for allocation, then it won't be any use. If a health ministry proposes, let's say, performance-based transfers to incentivise better performance in service providers, it won't work if there isn't mechanisms to actually hold those providers to account, to measure their performance. So there's clearly an opportunity in thinking beyond just the PFM system as this closed system that sits separate from the rest of the government, and instead linking up how we think about budgets, how finance ministries think, and linking that up more with issues around local government, public management more broadly, about the sector needs, and so getting beyond these um, constraints of just thinking about PFM in closed terms. So I'm going to close my comments by making a request to you. I've charted out these two different paths. A path where essentially this PFM and service delivery agenda simply constitutes a change of language. And we carry on doing the same things as before. And a second path where we have a more critical reflection about how PFM can really deliver for public services. And what I want to ask of you, the kind of the brilliant people in the room, I see some people, but you're all, you know, all these brilliant people here with different perspectives from different ministries, different countries, different governments, international organisations, please help us. Please help ODI, please help international organisations like DFID, like the Gates Foundation, like GIZ, like NORAD, international organisations that are really thinking hard about how the kinds of support they provide can be best channeled to promoting improved service delivery. I want you to help us over the next two days, challenge us. How can we make sure that we're being sufficiently critical and thinking about, uh, are we doing as best as we can to think about how PFM can be adapted to the very specific needs of service delivery? And so with that, I want to pass on to uh, my colleague Ratin, well, Ratin, who heads up the um, Public Finance Institute in in, uh, India, National Public Institute of Finance? Yeah, it's a a long acronym. Um, Ratan is going to reflect for us on how these issues play out at the national level. Thank you. Thanks.
0: Thank you, Mark. Good morning, everyone. It's a real pleasure to be here. I've I don't think I've visited any institution more often than any public finance institution more often than I have ODI since I was a student here in not not at ODI in, in 1989. Uh, which is quite remarkable since I've, I've moved from academia to the UN and then back to India. So it's it's really good to be back. Uh, I see lots of old friends here, some of whom I've learned the business from, and uh, some of whom I have uh, sort of argued with, and some of whom have actually uh, said a lot of what Marx said over the years from time to time. So I must say that, uh, let me start by saying that uh, in... A sense, responding to what you said, that this question about PFM, I think, has troubled a lot of us, because there was an underlying political tension between the ostensible reason why we use PFM in PRSPs, and the needs, the operational needs of those who gave money for those PRSPs, because I can't recall a single country that did a PRSP that didn't want money from someone. So, uh, because... The rhetoric of effective use of aid apart, there was a need for some kind of quantitative definition of whether aid, irrespective of results, was being used in ways that would satisfy those who gave it. And I think a lot of PFM, you've got to be honest, developed from that perspective. Uh, I'm thinking particularly at Simon and I were on the same table years ago when I worked with the UN system about PIFA. Uh, and how it developed. There was a tension in the room in Paris in all those meetings on whether PFA was genuinely meant to drive more effective public financial management or whether it was an aid instrument. And I found myself in the very odd for a UN system person alliance with the US and Japan uh, and somebody else who kept saying that uh, this is all political and therefore PFA cannot be political. Uh, because uh, and it cannot be too binding or normative or prescriptive because that reduces our political space. And I thought that made sense actually, since it was driven not at perhaps at the practitioner level but at the at the policy level by by certain politics. So uh, since I'm going to talk about the national context, I'm going to try and do that and respond to Mark's points about rhetoric and uh, uh, questioning. We, uh, in India now, it's a large country, so we have 30 governments of India, really, if we exclude local government. We have 29 state governments and one central government. And then I don't know how many gazillion local governments we have. Uh, we have a PFI industry, and we don't need PFA. We have a PFI industry because of the and Auditor General of India, who has been demanding for a while that state governments, uh, especially, uh, hold themselves accountable uh, in terms of fiscal responsibility, but self-accountable. And so what that community discovered, and in my own institution, therefore, we have a public expenditure cell. And like any CEO, I have to worry about solvency. So what keeps that cell solvent is the routine PIFA work they do. So I have like nine guys who do PIFAs for 14 states a year, 12 states a year and then we export some PFAS, I mean, to Bangladesh and that sort of thing. So so I get about 16 to 18 PFAS done that pays their salaries and I'm happy. Uh, But I'm making this point to to sort of highlight the fact that the the question of rhetoric is not just a matter now of the aid community, obviously, as you were saying, that is less important now, but also the need to justify, I think, to the, and I, I want to make this distinction, not to the people people don't matter really, at least in my country, to the policy community that influences thinking that the minimum necessary things needed to spend money in line with international practice are being operationalized, which is a very different matter from whether money is being spent well, But and that's an important sort of uh, uh, benchmark, which I'm not denying, which is to make sure that things happen in line with policy community standards. So again, asking you to rethink PIFA, I'd say that, or or public financial management in terms of, it was more about meeting the standards consistent with what an international community of practice like us thought was essential for good public financial management that drove many PFM reforms, which is why after the obligatory genuflection that we will not do cookie cutter, over the tw- past 20 years, we have gone and invented cookie cutter. We have invented MTFFs that look cookie cutter. We have invented PFAS that look cookie cutter, right? So I think we need to reflect on this, not to say, oh, we shouldn't be cookie cutter, but is there something driving the fact that we end up with, with you know, certain kinds of uniformities, and is that good or bad? Uh, again, in the country context, that's important because one of the things that we don't mention about ministries of finance, which they need very badly, I think, mm. is uniformity. Because one thing that uniformity does is allows comparative judgment and also in my view, and this is controversial so please challenge me, reduces room for I think one of the biggest nightmares of any finance ministry, which is discretion. Uh, I used to joke earlier when I used to teach that finance ministries are a bit like librarians. Librarians don't like books being given out on discretion. They like books being given out on rules. When, when librarians gave out books, I don't know what they do now. And ideally, uh, the books were returned as soon as possible, and a librarian was happy when the maximum number of books possible were actually in the library and not out there with sub readers. So I think finance ministries are very much like that. They have a deep distrust, as a matter of principle, on requests for things that do not follow rules. And therefore, there's a natural marriage between a rule-based BFM system and a desire of finance ministries to make sure that discretion is minimized. But I wish I could have stopped there, it's actually worse. It's worse because what finance ministries, now this is what I've learned since going back home, Uh, my 29 governments of India, I'll say all of them, it's not that they don't want discretion, they do not want discretion anywhere except in the hands of the Prime Minister or the Chief Minister and the Minister of Finance. That's where they want the discretion, because that is where political power lies. And therefore, they do not want the discretionary, widespread use of political power at different pressure points, which is why, like librarians, they don't like mobile libraries. They don't like decentralization. They don't like local... They might say they do, but they don't really like these people because it decentralizes finance and finances power. So it decentralizes power. So I think we need to reflect... uh, This is my theme one. We need to reflect very hard... And it's inevitable, it's called public service, oh, you didn't say delivery, Pub- better public services, that's even better. Because the moment we start talking about better this and better that, you are making political statements. What's to say that you know health spending is good? You just <laughs> made a political statement which is interesting in a, conf- in a PFM conference, see I'm hard um, the, Who says universal health coverage is a good thing? You have to assert it politically and and, and establish it like like murder as a matter of argument rather than doctrine. So the moment we go into better public services, we can either follow the old fashioned route, and and this is what we have we were doing in India for the last fifteen years, uh, in health and education in particular, which is to say that PFM's job is to make sure that if money is being spent badly, we don't throw more money and get you know, equally bad results, or we spend the same amount of money and get better results, not that we spend more money and get better results. That was supposed to be the first cornerstone of good public financial management. I'll give you an example. I used to, I was posted in Brazil, and I we had a conference there, and uh, some fellow countrymen turned up in Brazil and said, it's quite terrible. There's a state called Lorissa, It's a very poor state. And, you know, in the state of Orissa, there's 40% teacher vacancies, 40%. So I was very concerned, and I happened to know the chief minister. I used to live in New York when I lived there. So I, had, I happened to meet him in Delhi when I was on a trip there, and I said, uh, you know, uh, chief minister, 40% teacher vacancies. So he looks at me and says, Dr. Roy, here's a piece of paper. Will you please write down there that if, if I fill these vacancies, I will get better education outcomes. Can you say that? And I said, no, I can't. I don't know enough about your teacher. Please don't tell me how to do my job. So the teacher vacancies were an explicit, tacit uh, admission on his part. And this is very prevalent. We don't talk about it. I know in other developing countries I've worked with, certainly in my own, that the state's capabilities extend up to a certain point and really do not go much further. There's interesting, I'm giving a plug. I'm giving a lecture at the LSE on Friday on, on Indian public finance. Uh, 6.30, um, so <laughs> I know it's a Friday evening but still your PFM guys are hell. there. Um, so, uh, I'll buy you a drink later if, you, if, if I see any of you and I've got a good memory. So uh, one interesting long-term trend in Indian public finances has been this. If you look at the governments of India, and that's a different story, the central government has shrunk and the fiscal space for state governments has increased. So the central government now spends about 13% of GDP, down from 21% 28 years ago, and the state government spent 21% of GDP, up from 13% 28 years ago. Size of the state is exactly the same, but there's been a tectonic shift in who's doing the spending. The state governments are solvent, and that's still not the point. The point is, therefore, they have lots more money, and the process has been unequalizing in the sense that, uh, if you think of this ice cream coal, then all the action has been in the in the coal, not in the ice cream, except one cherry deli. And in that in that bit, state governments have become much richer. But it does not mean that the quality of public services they've been delivering has dramatically improved relative to poorer states. What instead has happened is that the state governments have stopped spending. So the richer state governments have shrunk and the poorer state governments have expanded. And the richer state governments have shrunk in large measure, not fully, because of a fallen tax effort. So they've actually chosen to tax less rather than deliver better public services. So in those circumstances, when I go to the richer state governments, they say, this is our politics. We want to leave more money in the hands of people. So tell us how to do better financial management so that we can deliver the same results without spending more. We don't want better results because the rest of India is here, so we want to be here. And that's it, we don't want to be here. And reasons will amaze you, migration. Good point, good point, you know. We know that as public finance people, people will move. If I have substantially better public services in one province, you know that from Europe, well you're not in Europe anymore. When you were, uh, then you know, people do migrate, uh, and, and other reasons. So, I, but if you go to the poorer state governments, their, their ask is different. This, we cannot spend more money and we now have money to spend. So how do we spend more money and get better results? So there's another fork there in the road which is tied to the structure of public finances and how that changes over time. I think this is particularly important in emerging economies because for two reasons. One, in smaller unitary emerging economies. Uh, Emerging economies have states which have suddenly have much more money than they know what to do with. There are problems with that because it tends to be volatile, I should know. It comes in phases and then it stops coming and therefore, you know, historic programming is difficult. But, so you have a lot more money coming in and then a lot more pressure to take a decision on whether that means you should tax less or spend more. And therefore, the, the argument for spending more uh, if one leads to one set of PFM challenges, the argument for spending less, if one leads to another set of PFM challenges. In the, in the latter case, it is how to maintain quality while spending less. Finance ministries like an answer to that question anyway, because one of the ultimate fiduciary duties of a finance ministry is to make sure that when things fall apart, we know how to cut money in sophisticated ways. And this is something we never focused on in PFM. And I think that's the second theme I'd like to highlight. I'm facing that challenge now in India, which is because we have a shrinking central government and because we wouldn't like to borrow more, uh, and we are not, not, I'm choosing my words carefully and publicly, we are not able to tax more. We are not able to tax more. Uh, We have to spend less. But how to do that Uh, in ways that least afflict the quality of public financial management For how long do we need to do that? How long do we need to prepare for spending cuts? Which ones have to be permanent? Which ones have to be relatively temporary? Uh, Given political direction becomes an important question. Uh, If you don't answer these questions, then uh, combined with uneven capabilities, then you end up with what's happened to the government of India, which is the government of India is fiscally broke if you look at our budget, but there's, how much is it, Vishal? Two trillion rupees? Five trillion rupees? Cash float? One trillion rupees, rupees idle cash, sitting in different accounts of the government of India that have not been spent historically for years and years and years. And you would think it's a no-brainer that they should spend this. And there's been some very sophisticated work done on how they could do so. So that's not a constraint. We have the technology something called PFMS, which actually enables me to come to this number. And I can tell you in real I mean, if I open it on my phone, I can tell you, you know, how much money is in different cash balances of the government of India at any level you want uh, as of last night. So I know what the float is. I know it's been there a long time. But the finance ministry is unwilling and therefore not unable, therefore unwilling to use it. And there must be a politics there. Which should be the bread and butter of public financial management investigational analysis. But it has not been. So we have confined ourselves to saying there's a float, you should use it. But there's a float, why aren't you using it? Are you not using it because you cannot spend it? Are you not using it because you do not want to spend it? Or are you are you not spending it because environment to spend in other areas where the money is needed is not possible because of the politics, or is it not possible because of you know, incompetence. The point is, it could be any of these in combination. I don't have an answer. So again, reflecting on PFM challenges would mean that we would really need to think much harder about how to solve these questions, which you will notice are at one level of complexity higher than the questions we were asking perhaps 12 years ago. And that's a good thing, because I think in large part the the low-complexity questions we have now, for better or worse, solved. Uh, largely solved. So these higher order complexity questions are becoming important and I think that's one of the reasons why we have moved to by the way PFM for better service delivery because it is also the case that now many developing countries have more money than they did 20 years ago and more liquid money and therefore you, it's not just a matter of reporting back to some multilateral donor. Uh, you know That can be done fairly easily on a computer but it's a question of how and whether you should spend more money uh, in, in these different areas. The final point I'd like to speak of is uh, the challenge of making sure that public financial management for better service delivery does not lose sight, which it tends to, when you start, you know, this illusion with policy, it tends to lose sight of the fundamental job of PFM, which I have to keep bringing people back to and I think the Chief Minister's comment was very important, which is, do I know that I can spend less money for the same results? Or, before I ask the question, do I know that I can spend more money for better results? Uh, That's a very, very important interface with policy. So, for instance, I'll put my neck out and say that in Indian education, I don't think it would make any bloody difference to education outcomes if you cut expenditures by 10%. I think it would make a difference to health outcomes if we took the wrong uh, decision, which is if I cut off my baby program, uh, I was in Rajasthan, and you know, uh, Rajasthan is a, is a, has large remote areas, it's beautiful, camels, that sort of thing, but it's remote it's So there were doctors, and the doctors wouldn't go and live in district hospitals, increase their pay, so I met them, and they said, no, we don't like living in district headquarters because there's no mall, and would you live there? I said no. That's the point I wouldn't. So what do I do now? My doctors don't want to live at the level of the district, but I have to get medicine going. So broadly, I, you know, in in that state, we, we came to a conclusion and we said, okay, what we'll do is, we'll we know that diagnostics and curatives for two important uh, diseases in India, uh, which are symptomatic of other diseases. Uh, I have one of them, which is high blood pressure uh, and diabetes, which I fortunately don't yet, uh, are ubiquitous across India. So we said, okay, these doctors, what we'll do is we'll put them in vans with diagnostic machines, and they can leave the mall city and go on a three-day tour and come back. And all they have to do is diagnose people with just two things, high blood pressure and diabetes. And our ramshackle and corrupt you know, public uh, pharmaceutical system We'll just procure, this was my big idea, metformin, uh, an anti-diabetic pill, and an anti- anti-hypertensive pill. I'm not going to worry too much about bespoke, customized hypertension. We're just going to bang in, you know, hypertensive pills, and we're going to bang, and we're going to flood the state with these pills, like, like cycles in London. I mean, there'll be metformin and, and, and you know, blood pressure pills everywhere. <laughs> and it worked. It worked beautifully over, it's been three years now, and obviously because of diagnosis, I mean, you know, both hypertension, diagnosis, and correction, and diabetes, uh, in that state is halved, more than halved. And then, you know, they're a curative path, and they don't have to come to the doctor every day because we actually diagnose the root cause. But this doesn't help me improve for public health any further because I cannot take this to the next level of complexity. This was the simplest solution I could have, and I've done it. I wish I could do it in education, but human beings are very trying, especially children. I mean, you you just don't know why they're not learning better. Someone tells me they're stunted at growth. Someone tells me they don't have good parents. Someone tells me it's the wrong language. It's confusing. So I'm looking forward to your diagnostic. Health is easy. Diabetes, metformin, vaccines, get it done. And this is the final point I want to make. At least the Indian state, I don't know if this is also true of many other states except China. China is good at everything. But uh, if you leave aside China, well, I think. Now I can say that. But uh, if we leave aside China for a minute, you know, the nature of bureaucracies in, in and this is very important, I think, for PFM, in uh, developing countries is such that they're relatively good, at least most of them, at doing things that have a start date and an end date and a relatively non-complex mode of delivery, which is why the Indian government organizes reasonably fair elections uh, at scale. We managed to vaccinate our kids rather well. And we done good, big religious programs like the kummela and things like that. Millions of pilgrims, no one falls sick, there's no, you know, there's no cholera. And then I discovered extending that we can, we, can, we can fix diabetes and we can fix blood pressure. But tasks that require the government to spend money regularly, every day, year after year, at quality, that have no end date, that are programs as such in perpetuity, those tend to fail. And I think in the taxonomy of PFM, it would be very, very important for us to try and recognize this somehow. My big problem, and I'm sure this is true of many of my developing country colleagues, is that I would do many things if I had a higher capacity country. I know that I cannot have a higher capacity government if I don't have a higher capacity country. We, We have tried creating islands of excellence. It doesn't work. So there's no point in my trying to create a Rolls Royce finance ministry when everyone else is on a bicycle. I'm sorry for that climate uh, politically un- incorrect climate remark, but I'll, I'll stick with the analogy. Uh, but I can possibly move someone from a bicycle to what we have in India, an auto rickshaw. I can do that kind of scaling up. But anything that requires me to move them even to a baby Fiat you know, or a little car is not going to happen in, in, in one lifetime, and then I lose political backing, and I lose political will, and the whole thing then becomes gestural. So I have to work with the capacity I have so, what PFM reforms are, are possible without undue attention being paid to capacity development? Uh, the solution for that, I know unfortunately, is not artificial intelligence, better computing power, because the role of discretion and the role of uh, money remains as imp- I mean, of, of human intervention remains as important. So, but but we haven't considered this. And therefore, you know, when you think about reforms that aim for transparency and accountability without bringing in the politics, which is a cheaper way to bring about transparency and accountability, then you, one tends to sort of fail, and then you get rhetoric. But uh, if we could actually ask, is there a small increase in transparency which would improve PFM processes by improving public service delivery, then the answer is yes. because And, and the blood pressure and diabetes pills thing was a very good example because we just put out in every, every single sort of almost village of India how, many, how much we had spent on blood pressure and diabetes, pills, and there was a hotline which they could call if pills were not available, free, in perpetuity, in abundance, anyone could call. So that, that worked, because it didn't require capacity at the recipient end, it didn't require much capacity at the, uh, at the deliverer end. But the challenge, I think, in the next generation is that as countries have more money and want to ratchet up, Three things happen. When you have more money, you must know even more than earlier how to make do with less, because the world of discretionary expenditure goes up. So we need to find answers about when things go bad, how do governments cut without falling apart? The second is, how do governments who know they have low capacity understand that they are spending just about enough for the low level of results they wish to achieve. And then comes the third, which we all like addressing, which is how to actually improve public service delivery by channeling public finances better uh, in ways that uh, are able to, or are consistent with, the levels of complexity that governments at the national level can handle effectively. So I'll stop there. I'm looking forward to the next two days, and uh, thank you very much again, ODI, for inviting me. Thank you.
2: So what uh, I want to do is suggest that we break for a coffee earlier than planned and then we'll have our opening panel where we'll hear reflections from the health sector, the education sector, also finance perspectives. Um, So I suggest that we start back here at 11 for the the next panel. Okay, thank you.